I'd like for you to find the first chapter of the book of Mark. And I want to read verses 14 through 22. The first chapter of the book of Mark, verses 14 through 22. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets, and immediately called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach, and they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Abraham Lincoln was quoted with this statement, by, uh, for, uh, for this statement, Most folks are as happy as they choose to be. Frank Minereth and Paul Meyer picked up on that quotation and wrote a book entitled, Happiness is a Choice. In the foreword of that book, uh, Paul Meyer makes this statement, quote, I couldn't agree with Lincoln more. He is right on, and he ought to know, for he suffered enough anguish in his life. The death of his fiancée, the lost elections, the civil war, and other crushing disappointments, so much that he got so depressed at one point in his life, he contemplated suicide. But Lincoln chose to overcome his depression. He chose to be happy, and he found peace and happiness in the last days before he fell victim to an assassin's bullet. Most of us are as happy as we choose to be. Now we're wishing one another today a happy new year. And probably what we're thinking is this, I just hope for you that the circumstances are such that you'll have happiness and health. But circumstances do not guarantee happiness. Most of us are as happy as we choose to be. A woman went to her doctor. She had a lot of aches and pains, and he was kind of a country doctor in a little country town. And he was, after a careful examination, convinced that the reason why she felt the way she felt was because she thought the way she thought. And so he took her in the back room where he had a lot of medicine and some bottles where he bottled medicine, and there was this wall of empty bottles there. And he told the lady, he said, those bottles basically are like, you know, they're not the same size, but they're basically the same. The important thing is that they're all empty. And I can fill those bottles with enough poison to kill everybody in this community, or I can fill, it, fill them with medicine that will bring down a fever or ease a throbbing headache or, or fight bacteria in some part of the body. The important thing, he said, is the choice is mine. Then he looked right in the eye and he said, Every day that God gives us is like one of those empty bottles. You can fill it with love and life-giving thoughts, 
or you can fill it with those thoughts that are poisonous and destructive. The choice is yours. And he turned around and he walked out. We have today 365 empty bottles set before us in this new year. And I can tell you that you can fill those bottles with the ingredients of pain or pleasure. You can fill them with that which builds or destroys. You can be a curse or a blessing, but the choice is yours. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, you know, you're, you're, that's easy for a preacher to say. Your circumstances are not like mine. Well, let me tell you something. Your circumstances have not made life for you the way it is. As a matter of fact, the list of people who have overcome unfortunate circumstances is awesome. Einstein couldn't talk until after his fourth birthday. They thought he was an imbecile. And he couldn't read until after his seventh. Beethoven was told by one of his teachers as a composer, you're hopeless. Um, Thomas Edison, when he was just a young boy, was told by his teacher, you're so dumb, I don't think you'll ever learn anything. F.W. Woolworth didn't land his first job until, he was after, until after he was 21 years of age in a little five-and-dime department store, but he wasn't allowed to wait on customers because he didn't, quote, have good sense. Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper job because he was considered a person who had no good ideas. Caruso was told by his teacher, you really don't have a good voice. I don't think you'll ever be able to sing. And Louisa May Alcott was told by a publisher, you'll never really ever write anything that has public appeal. And the list goes on and on. Now you might be saying, okay, so I choose to be happy and I choose to have a successful new year just when I choose that, does it just happen automatically? I mean, if I choose to be positive and think positive, is that just going to guarantee that everything's going to be great for me? No, not on your life. I believe there are four things that are essential, four things that have to go into those empty bottles for you and I to have a happy new year. First, these four this. First, you must have something to do. You need someone to love you need something to look forward to, and you need somebody to obey. You need something to do. We're so designed that meaningful activity is essential to a happy life. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told to tend it. I think sometimes we're tempted to believe that the absence of responsibility is happiness. And I'm the first to admit that sometimes responsibility can be a crushing weight. Sometimes I wish that I didn't have responsibility. It is a load to bear. But we are so designed that in order to have a meaningful life, we must have a responsibility to do some meaningful activity. Now you may be saying to me, well, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be and I can't do what I used to could do. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean that your life is to be devoid of all meaningful activity. Have you seen that uh, submarine that's docked in that man-made dock up at Muskogee? Can you believe a submarine in Muskogee, Oklahoma? When I started seeing the advertisement that there was a submarine in Muskogee, I thought it was a tourist trap. I mean, you won't find a submarine 
in the middle of Oklahoma. So I went out there to see that thing, and sure enough, there is a submarine in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Well, the, you know, the ports are empty, and the, and the engines are silent, and the decks are cleared, and the guns are plugged with concrete, but there, there is a submarine sitting in dry dock, we call it in mothballs, just floating around up there in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And one day, probably, if nothing happens, they'll, that, that, old, that old submarine will be carried out to sea and sunk, or it'll be used for scrap, not unlike some of us. I mean, we just kind of in mothballs. I wonder what it would take this morning for you and I to reclaim what we used to have. I wonder what it would take this morning to reclaim the passion that some of us used to have for meaningful activity, for service of God. I wonder what it would take for some of us to get out of dry dock. Charles Rosenau, for a long time, was a chief physician at Mayo Clinic. He told how he was urged in or decided to be a physician. He said he... And when he was just a little boy, his older brother was sick, very ill, about to die. They didn't know whether he was going to live or die. And he said, my parents were just agonizing over the fact that my brother might die any minute. He said, one night the doctor came out of my brother's room with a big smile on his face. And he said, well, you can relax. Your son's going to be okay. And he was profoundly impressed by the change that announcement brought or wrought in his parents. And he said, I determined right then that I was going to be a doctor and put light in people's faces. Now, doctors are not only the ones who can do that. Dedicated teachers do that and committed plumbers do that and consecrated merchants and employees do that. What, what does it take to be a person who puts light in somebody's face? Well, he's a person who understands that he's on mission for God. And he sees his life as with a divine purpose and with a divine call. And he understands who he is. And he recognizes that these gifts that God has given him, he must be a steward of them and is accountable to God for them. I'm talking about, I'm urging you this morning to get involved. I shared with my uh, guys that met on Friday that one of the greatest lessons I learned were not at the seminary, but from the people of churches I pastored since. While I was in the seminary, I pastored a little old community called Lipan, and it's a little old one-horse town. I mean, it had a grocery store and a feed store and a domino hall and a little drug store, and they had, this, uh, they had these benches out in front of this grocery store where the old-timers sat, spit and whittled. And they, they, they'd talk, you know, all day there in the shade, and, one Saturday morning, I went down to the grocery store to get some groceries, and I, and I came out, one of the old-timers said to me, well, Pastor, what you got there? What's to eat? And I said, well, I got some biscuits. I was naming off what I had, and he said, I, don't, he said, I can't stand those store-bought biscuits. He said, my wife used to make biscuits from scratch. He said, I, now she just opens up a can. He said, I can't stand, though. He said, biscuits just don't taste the same now that... Now that she doesn't knead the dough with her hands and get that body fluid in there. That was about the grossest thing I'd ever heard. Now, what, what he was talking about, however, I understand now, it's not so gross. He, what he was lamenting was the fact that, that folks don't want to get their hands in the dough anymore. 
and they don't want to get involved. And I'm here to plead with you about the fact that we have Sunday school classes that need teachers. And, 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 you know, and what we do is we just kind of lump everybody together when we can't get teachers. And I don't have any problem with that if that's the best way to teach, but I have a big problem with it if we have to do that because we can't get anybody to teach. I'm here to urge you the fact that there are people who, who need visits from this church and who need ministry from this church. I'm, I'm here to plead with you to get involved in that meaningful activity. You'll be happier if you do. You probably never heard of a guy by the name of Willard Hotchkiss, but I've heard of him. He was a missionary to Africa. Over his life he wrote, I have served remotely alone for 40 years in Africa. 39 times I've been stricken with a disease, three times attacked by lions, several times by rhinoceri. But I'm here to tell you, I do it all over again for the joy of taking the word Savior and flashing it into the darkness that envelops the tribes of Africa. Man, that must make, that must make a guy happy to take the word Savior, the name Savior, and flash that name into the darkness that envelops folks. That's what I'm here to urge you to do. What do we do when people like Mr. Emmy Dobbins no longer can go down to Garden Villa? What do we do about guys like, what do we do about a ministry like that? When he's no longer able to do that, what do we do? We say, well, we rationalize and say, well, there's really no need for that ministry anyway and just kind of write it off. While you're watching football games tomorrow, remember that when Alabama played Rice in the Cotton Bowl several years ago, Dickie Magel was headed for a touchdown, and one guy on the Alabama bench couldn't stand it any longer. He's ran out on the field and tackled the guy. He was wide open, headed for a touchdown. Somebody asked him why he did that. He said, I don't know. <laughs> Good question. He said, I just couldn't stand to see a guy score a touchdown, and I'd do nothing about it. Makes sense to me. I mean, are you willing to let the enemy march up and down the field while you do nothing about it? Are you going to sit on the sideline and watch the enemy win just because you don't want to get involved? You need something to do. Second, you need somebody to love. I saw some teenagers smiling. Say, well, let me know who you got in mind. I, I, if you need somebody to love, you take that word love and you stamp it across the ministry of Jesus because that's what it was all about. He loved the leper so much that he touched him nobody else would touch. He loved so much that he would sit and converse with a Samaritan woman by a wellside. He loved so much that he stood between the prostitute and the religious firing squad. He loved so much that that love laughed at weddings and wept at funerals. He loved. And so while he stood around the grave of Lazarus, his friend, the Jews were over here saying what they had wanted to say all along. They just hadn't had the occasion. They stood there and said, man, how he loves. Now I know that love took him all the way to Calvary. 
and he had spilled a little blood on the way there and, and endured some pain and some heartache on the way there. But who is there this morning who is willing to stand up and say that he didn't live? He had somebody to love. Arthur Garden in his book, Touch of Wonder, tells about as a kid having a scoutmaster who would take him out into the woods and never say a word, just take him around out in the woods. He'd get back to, to the camp and he'd ask them, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd quiz them about what they saw, flowers and trees and birds and wildlife. And he said invariably, not a quarter of what he saw and not enough to please him. And he said he'd get all worked up and he'd, he'd roll his arms around like some preacher, you know, and say, boys, creation is out there before you. Don't shut yourself up to it. Don't go around in a buttoned-up existence. Stop wearing your raincoat in the shower. What a graphic statement. Stop wearing your raincoat in the shower. You know what he meant, don't you? You know what he meant. He meant stop being this kind of person who has squeezed the circle of his life down so small that all it includes is me. We're called the me generation. And Paul Simon must have been thinking about the guy who wore his raincoat in the shower when he wrote these words. A winter's day in a deep, dark December and I'm alone, gazing out my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen, silent shroud of snow. I am a rock. I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress no one can penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and love I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Don't talk to me of love. Oh, I remember the word before. I've heard the word before. It's sleeping in my memory, and I'll not disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I'd never loved, I never would have cried. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one, and no one touches me. I am a rock, I am an island, and rocks feel no pain, and an island never cries. Tanner in his book, Loneliness is the Fear of Love, said, the fear of love is the one root cause of every attitude or form of behavior that separates us. You need somebody to love. Now I hear some of you saying to me, well, preacher, all my family is dead and gone, and I have no one to love. And my heart goes out to you, my friend. But please don't let the, your capacity to love die with your family and your friends. Love is the last word, said H.G. Wells. A new commandment I give you, Jesus said, that you love one another. Because He loved us, we need to find somebody to love, or else this will be a buttoned-up existence and it will be pointless and futile, and it will be un unfulfilling and 
ultimately it will be deadly. I love Charlie Brown, don't you? He gets down to the real stuff. One day he was talking to Lucy and he said, I need some friends. He said, I don't have a friend. She said, well, what would you call a friend? He said, well, he had already figured it out. He said, friend is somebody who will take, when you play tennis, the side with the sun in his eyes. He's the guy who will watch the same programs you like to watch. A friend is somebody who can't stand the same kind of music you can't stand. He'll take up for you when you're not there, and he'll accept you as you are. Oh, I love it. He'll accept you as you are. And Lucy says, you are too serious. You know, it's, oh, you're just too, you try too hard, she said. I don't have any friends, and I don't need any. And he said, oh, I do. I need all the friends I can get. I'll even take some fair weather ones. He understood that in order to be happy, you have to have somebody to love. Third, I'm, I'm on my way, hanging there. You need something to look forward to. Did you notice in this text that, that Jesus called James and John and not Zebedee? Did, did you notice that? They were sitting in their boat and they were with their father fishing. And when he came by, he called James and John and left Zebedee sitting in the boat. Now, does that mean that he didn't call Zebedee? Well, J. Winston Pierce has an interesting opinion. He said probably Jesus didn't call Zebedee because he knew Zebedee wouldn't come. And then he said this, listen to this. He said, age does not respond to Jesus as readily as youth. There is something about Jesus that draws the adventuresome and left and leaves the settled conservative sitting in a boat shaking his head. I love it. What he's saying is this, that Jesus was this kind of man that just generated excitement for those who were tired of the old stuff. Man, what they had to look forward to. And these disciples, are you listening? These disciples lived in the pulsating in excitement of tomorrow. While Zebedee, all he had to look forward to is getting up and going back to work. Now watch carefully. Somehow in my imagination I see these disciples, you know, together sometime and and Jesus has gone off up somewhere to pray, and every time he'd go off up somewhere to pray, he'd always come back and do something fantastic. So while he was off up there praying, these disciples, can you imagine this? They were sitting around in this circle, and they were saying, can you believe it? What's going to happen next? I thought I, would, I thought I would faint when he turned that water to wine. Man, have you ever seen anything like it? He's still the wind. I, that scared me to death. I don't know about you, but man, I've never been so scared. And did you see him take those loaves and fishes of that little old boy? Did his mouth drop open or what when he turned those loaves and fishes into a meal feeding 5,000? And they just went on and on, and the consensus of the group was this, man, we can't wait till tomorrow. See what's going to happen next. 
I believe that if you're a child of God, the best is yet to be. It seems to me that this is the greatest day in which to be alive that we as people of God have ever lived. Why all this discouragement? Why all this depression? We've lost confidence in ourselves, in each other, and in God. H.G. Wells said, Man who began in a cave behind a windbreak will end in the disease sordid slum. Man, what an optimist. Did he have something to look forward to or what? How different is H.G. Wells from the Apostle Paul who said, I'm ready for anything because God keeps on infusing me with strength. Now what I'm talking about when I say something to look forward to is this, that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, we go, the Bible says, from grace to grace. We go from revelation to revelation. When you place your faith and obedience in Jesus Christ, one door opens up to another victory. And the ultimate victory is His victory. Because history moves not on a concentric or a cyclic line, but, but history moves on a linear line slanted upward. And the midpoint of that line is the incarnation of Jesus. And the end of that line is the eschatological return of the Lord and His glorious kingdom. Man, do we have something to look forward to or not? No wonder he sang the song under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What a day, glorious day that'll be. I know that uh, you've heard of Alfred Nobel. The Nobel Peace Prize was begun by him. You may not know, you, you do know he, was, he invented dynamite. You knew that he's the dynamite king. You may not know the rest of the story if you've not heard Paul Harvey lately. The rest of the story is that, that when his older brother Ludwig Nobel died, this careless reporter put his name, Alfred Nobel, in there as though he died. So he read his own obituary. Now that's shocking enough. But the title of that obituary was the thing that changed his life. And the title of the obituary was this. Alfred Nobel, Merchant of Death, succumbs. Merchant of Death. And he thought to himself, he said to himself, is that how I'm going to be remembered? As a merchant of death? I want to be remembered, remembered as a merchant of life. I want to do as the psalmist said when he said, Lord, sanctify, establish the work of my hands. I want to leave something behind. I want something to look forward to. One last thought, please. You need somebody to obey. I save the best for last. You need somebody to obey. Lawrence Crabb has a good book. You need to read it called Inside Out. In this book, Lawrence Crabb says that man has three basic needs. Are you watching? He has what he calls casual needs. If you can put up three little circles inside, one circle inside of another. If I had three arms, hands, I could do that. But you get the picture. Man has three basic needs. He has what is called casual needs. That's the outer circle. And that has to do with circumstances like I need housing, lodging, and food, and clothing, and even good health. And he says that 
that man has critical needs, and that has to do with relationships. He needs people. He needs someone to love. He has, he has a need for relationships. That's what he calls critical needs. But the inside of these three circles is the basic need, he says, that everybody has, and that is what he calls crucial needs. Crucial need. And that is a meaningful relationship with God. Now, Lawrence Crabb is a psychiatrist. And he says that what we do is we start working on the outside to peel it off. And so we work on circumstances and we try to get circumstances to be better, thinking that'll make us happy. And, and when we get circumstances a little better, we start working on relationships. And if we can get relationships better, that'll make us happy. But he said, you will never be happy. You will never find fulfillment in life. And he's, and he's right. Until you get that inner circle filled. A meaningful relationship with God. Now I'm not asking are you, a, have you joined the church, have been baptized, or even if you're active in church. I'm asking do you have a meaningful relationship with God, a walk with God? Howard Rutledge, a United States Air Force pilot, was shot down over Vietnam spent years in POW camp. His story is in the book, the most meaningful book you will ever read, called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. I want to read something from this, then I'm through. During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays and had no time for church. For years, Phyllis, his wife, had encouraged me to join the family at church. She never nagged or scolded. She just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend one or two short hours a week thinking about the really important things. Now, the sights and sounds and smells of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for a steak. Now I wanted to know about that part of me that will never die. Now I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. But in prison camp, solitary confinement, there was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no hymn book, no community of believers to guide and sustain me. Now listen to this last statement. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. And it took prison to show me how empty life is without God. Do you know how empty life is without God? Then you need to go to work on that middle circle. And the way you go to work on that middle circle is to begin today this way, by turning away an attitude called repentance from your life as it is, and by faith give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Begin to follow Him for a lifetime. Begin to love Him and serve Him and know Him, experience Him. Let Him live in your life. 
let that middle circle that's empty and void be filled with His presence. And He'll begin to work from the inside to change you and yours. I'm going to ask you in a moment to get up out of your seat and come to Christ. Giving your heart and life to Him. It's the time to do it. You've waited long enough, too long. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your place this morning and come and place your life in the church. Get involved. Get your hands in the dough. I ask you in a moment, those of you who have been standing on the sideline while the enemy is winning, to make that commitment to say, I will assume responsibility for this meaningful activity. Now I have a feeling some of you want to come, but you'll put it off as well. I'll have a feeling that some of you have been wanting to commit your life unconditionally to Jesus for a long time. How about doing it today? After we've had our prayer, we'll ask you to come. who are tired of boats and nets and who want to be made fishers of men, who are willing to pay the price, make the sacrifice, whatever it takes, to put the light back in people's faces and to take the name Jesus and flash it into the darkness of this world until He comes again. Help us, Father, to step out of our little circle of individuality and isolation into that larger field that's white unto harvest and begin today. For I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. In a spirit of prayer, I ask you to stand. In a spirit of prayer, I invite you to come while we sing.